0: Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 88 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I was about to say what day
1: it is, Steve, but uh, I'm having trouble. Can you help me out? Well, we're recording this on Friday, August 17th, but I suspect that most of the people who are listening to it are listening to it no earlier than the week of August 27th, because we're trying this weird thing where we bank an episode. Steve, does that mean this is another... Deep dive. Deep dive alert.
0: Deep dive alert. We got. To, we should have had a sound effect set up for this. Some kind of submarine. You that, know that would require
1: preparation. Yeah, we don't do that. But so just for will mean, soon become apparent. Um, we we we. So we're actually we're recording this both before actually episode eighty seven. How's that for <laughs> mind boggling? Oh man. Um, but also with complete disregard to potential developments that have transpired in the last few days. That you all tuned in, anxious to hear our comments and reflection upon. You're just gonna have to wait till I get back from vacation. Sorry. Yeah. If uh, if so, if by
0: the time you're listening to this. Some some horrible, I'm sure something horrible will be happening, yeah. something that it's outrageous we're not commenting on. Right. We don't actually know. Like, this is, is Bob past. Mueller
1: still the special counsel, you know, is, I don't know, are the Mets still in fourth place? I mean, all kinds <laughs> of crazy things could happen.
0: <laughs> some of these things are more likely than others.
1: So, Bobby, why don't you tell folks what this deep dive is about, since now they're probably wondering if it's worth, you know, continuing to listen to exactly this so. out of time episode 88, which, by the way... If you're going to have an episode out of time, 88 is a good number for it cuz that's that's the speed at which the DeLorean can travel oh through time. Oh my god, that is so good.
0: Now if only we, which, had, which, which we
1: felt fast to me when I was like when I was young enough to appreciate back to the future, 88 miles an hour seemed like crazy fast. Now it's like, oh, Texas drivers 88's like, you know, nothing same on the gigawatts you know 1.21 gigawatts 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 it's gigawatts whatever
0: uh either way (laughs) the only way you're going to get it is by tying some contraption to the clock tower and we know that's not going to work All right. uh, We are here to—actually, this wasn't done on purpose, but it really flows naturally from our first Deep Dive episode. Listeners, if you were with us for that one a couple of weeks ago, you know we talked about the Hamdi decision, which at bottom is about the legalities of using military detention against an American citizen under color of the laws of war, the AUMF. And now we're going to pretty much look at the same thing with respect to not detention, but targeting, using lethal force. And our case study will be Anwar al-Awlaki, which is a name that for those who work in this area is obviously gonna be a very familiar one. Uh, Folks, that's the the American citizen who became an AQAP, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula member, whom the United States uh, attempted for some time to kill via drone strike and then eventually succeeded along the way we have not one but two different litigations both of which produce a set of really interesting i would say fed courts type issues you know political question uh, standing those sorts of issues and then later despite the failure of those lawsuits we still nonetheless in a way get to the merits in the sense that there are government Uh, Executive branch, Obama administration, uh, there's a white paper, there's an OLC memo, setting forth their view of the merits,
1: and we can engage on the merits. And then there's litigation over the release of the OLC opinion based on the white paper, which actually culminates in pretty important Second Circuit ruling in, I think it was April 2014, um, or June 2014, not long thereafter, the OLC opinion was released. So we actually have a fair amount to say about both the the facts and the legal analysis, not just sort of as a general proposition, but about the specifics in in Al-Awlaki's case. That's right. This, you could... You could nearly teach a short course in national security law uh, through the lens of this case. And perhaps between between this and Hamdi, maybe you could. Maybe we will. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, that all right. be some... So
1: why don't we, Bobby, let's start at the beginning. I mean, let's let's tell folks, so who was Anwar al How did he get to be on the radar for this kind of use of force? And why did his really become this high-profile, not, not test case, but really sort of, you know, notorious example in some circles and prominent example in others of the U.S. government's power to use force against one of its own citizens. So
0: Alaki's is born in the United States, first of all. The guy's from New Mexico. Uh, so let's just be really clear about this. We're talking about an American citizen. A birthright citizen. And in the uh, the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, so he, he's he's sort, sort of a uh, relatively young guy uh, at that point in time he actually was was called upon for example by the Washington Post in the in the immediate aftermath of, of the 9/11 attacks where there was a lot of interest in coverage saying to the non-muslim American public hey let me let me explain things about Islam to you he had some fairly prominent media roles uh, that I think you can fairly put under the heading of hey, I'm talking from, from within Islam to the non-Islamic American public and trying to explain that it's a religion of peace, et cetera. This right. is, you so know, the attacks don't to bridge the divide. Yeah, it, it was a sort of a, yeah, a translational role. Um, but whatever the merits, and you can have disputes about whether or not that was truly a good faith position being espoused by him at the time. Later on, he certainly comes to sour uh, pretty dramatically on the United States and the West in general in terms of their foreign policies. Uh, the, I think it's fair to say he, he, at least if he hadn't before, he certainly radicalized to some extent uh, as time goes by after 9-11, getting upset about the, the use of force in Afghanistan, then, then later Iraq. Um, he ultimately ends up uh, leaving the country. He goes to Yemen he ends up becoming, and I, th- I think this isn't really disputed, but perhaps there are those who would dispute it, he becomes a member of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, as we'll call it. Now, AQAP is uh, one of the... The famous or infamous Al Qaeda franchises. Uh, there was certainly a time, Steve, where it would seem silly to have to pause to kind of go over what what's AQAP has it relate to Al Qaeda. But in you know, 2018, maybe it's it's worth stepping back and doing that again because we've been so Islamic State focused for so many years now. Um, there was certainly a window there, especially around 2009, 2010, 2011 where AQAP seemed the particular organization most likely to carry out or to attempt to carry out uh, an attack within the United States akin to the 9/11 attacks and and most famously attempted to do so in particular through the Christmas uh, attempted bombing in a flight bound for Detroit where uh, Abdul Mutalab was uh, you know unsuccessful in setting off his bomb and that was an AQAP directed attack, and you have you have this sort of pattern where AQAP, though though very much based in Yemen, definitely had a wing of the organization or people within the organization interested in carrying out attacks against civilians in the United States in the West, if possible.
1: You also have, I mean, you also have the the claim that you know that Alaki was communicating with Major Nadal Hassan as part, uh, ma- that, yes. as part of that. As part of that, Hassan, of course, was responsible for the the murder for of the, thirteen soldiers at yeah. Fort Hood. So you know the it's Whatever the origins, whatever the cause is, there's a point after which Alaki becomes very, very high on the U.S. government's oh, let me, list.
0: Let me. I, I want to say more about this. Yeah. So, th- this is, a, to me, one of the most important parts of the story. So, I want to be precise in how we talk about it. Um, by the time you get to this period where, for example, Alaki is in communication with Major Hassan, um, he's he's not some obscure person. He's one of the most uh, widely viewed uh, providers of English language pro-violent jihad content on the web. Mm-hmm. Uh, his videos are, are watched all over the world. He's he's becoming deeply influential in a propagandist and recruitment sort of way, and that's that's very public. That's very visible. Anyone anyone could see that. It was a well-known problem, and so for many people, the the frame through which they first encountered al is the frame of a guy who may, may, may not, but may be part of AQAP, but who's involved in general propagandizing. And so there's sort of this speech element to how people thought about him. But that's not all that it looked like from the point of view of the intelligence community in the United States government. The belief within the government, we would later find out through court filings, was that they believed that the intelligence showed that he wasn't just an external general propagandist, but was in fact specifically involved in operational planning, including with respect to particular encouragement to carry out particular operations in particular ways. The Christmas Day bombing, perhaps foremost among them. Exactly so. So so depending on which of those frames you begin with, the story's gonna look a little differently. If you don't include the operational (laughs) element, it looks like, well, there's this guy who says things the
1: government doesn't like, and for his speech, he was droned. Right, so so, so I I wanna say this at the Outside, right before we sort of start marching through the legal developments, I mean, I think you and I both agree that we can unquestionably devise fact patterns where we would think that it is without any doubt. That the U.S. government has the legal authority to use lethal force against one of its own citizens, um, right? The Supreme Court recognized this in the ordinary law enforcement context in 1989 in Tennessee versus Garner. Of course, it has to follow on the battlefield. If a, you know, if Gaetano Torito, um <laughs> the U.S. citizen, right, the U.S. citizen who was captured fighting for the Italian army during World War II, if he's engaged in active hostilities on an open battlefield, we're, we're not prohibited from shooting back at him. Just because he's a citizen. I mean, even if you knew he was a citizen, even if he's wearing a shirt that says "I am an American citizen." So the the, the you know, although I think the Alaki case gets framed. In sort of categorical terms that are unhelpful. The real fight in this case, I think, was always the the sort of the government's factual and legal right. evidence for why what I think we both agree is a power the government will have in at least certain cases right. was available in his case specifically. Yeah, and I so I agree with that. I would say
0: that the Alaki case both exposes disagreement over where the line is mm-hmm. between the categories where the government can use force knowingly against a citizen and when it can't, and Uh, Actually, I think to a lesser extent, because I don't actually think there's a ton of real factual dispute about this there may be some, um, what the actual facts were about al Uh What there is, though, is for those who just kind of have more of a glancing engagement with the case, there are a lot of people who don't know this further factual claim on the government's part that he was operationally involved, right. and they assume that what you're talking about here is that there's a guy who had YouTube videos, and that's what got him killed, yeah. and it's not as simple as that.
1: Certainly not from the government's I mean, that's, that's, that's the controversy. Right. All right. So, so um, sometime in 2010, um, al Alaki is placed on some kind of list. Um, where the government basically is contemplating the use of lethal force against him. We find out in retrospect that also in 2010, um, David Barron, then I think the acting assistant attorney general in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel, does that sound right? I
0: don't know if he was uh, holding the position outright at that point or not.
1: But anyway, so David Barron writes a memo um, explaining the sort of why he believes that it would be lawful in certain circumstances to use lethal force against Alaki. Um, We don't find out about that memo for a while, but this is all happening in 2010 and and as word of this sort of leaks out a bit, there's the first lawsuit brought by his father.
0: Right. So Nasser Alalaki, who's not an American citizen, uh but Alalaki's father, and of course it's worth emphasizing here that Alalaki at this point is in fact a you know, a, a grown man. He's in his I guess maybe in his thirties by then. I think he's actually in his late thirties. Yeah, right? late thirties. I think he was born in right. seventy or seventy one if memory right. serves. So the initial suit is not fa- filed by Anwar Alalaki, nor was his father filing the suit after having been in contact with his son and his son saying, Dad, we I I'd like you to do this for me. The father's taking it upon himself. And now everyone can understand a parent wanting to do that but it's it's a critical part of what happens in this case that Nasser is the father not the actual person yeah. in interest but he he brings in action uh, making a variety of claims to the effect that it would be it would be unlawful if in fact the government is trying to, let alone succeeds in, killing my son. Um, so again, at this point there have been attempts, there's now media reporting that there is this guy who's very high profile yep. and there there have been a few attempts to
1: strike him. I think, the, him, the, I think the Washington list. Post specifically reported that there was a kill list and that a locker was he on is the top on it. of it. Right. Um so so based on all of these media reports, Nasser brings this lawsuit um and i think it's really important to stress basically bobby seeking injunctive relief seeking sort of anticipatory preemptive relief yes. against the government to block them from using lethal force against his son yeah here's
0: from here's a quote describing it from the court's later ruling uh, he seeks an injunction prohibiting defendants from intentionally killing anwar al-alaki Quote, unless he presents a concrete, specific and imminent threat to life or physical safety, comma, and there are no means other than lethal force that could reasonably be employed to neutralize the threat. Now, that's it's very interesting because as we're going to see, that request injunction actually isn't that different from the standard the government says they were applying themselves right. because al was a citizen. We should probably back up and say a few more bits of things about context before we dive into this opinion and what becomes of the father's lawsuit. Uh, First, uh, the United States has been using force on a combat operations basis in Yemen for a long time, surrounding this time period. So, this isn't some isolated thing out of the blue where the United States isn't otherwise present, uh, both through the military and through the CIA. at this point, a pretty substantial annual pace of using force uh, against AQAP there. The government had long since, by this point, been taking the position that AQAP was covered by the AUMF, even if it was separate, distinguishable from core al-Qaeda, it was uh, joined in the hostilities against the United States in light of its attempts to carry out attacks against us. Um, so we're, we're certainly already using uh, air power, not always drones, by the way. It's a big mistake to think that you have to think about this as a drone case. Uh, these could have been manned aircraft. It could have been artillery from the sea. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. What matters is it was the knowing attempt to use force from
1: whatever weapons platform. Well, I think, right, you and I agree that, the, that there's no meaningful way in which at least the legal analysis in this case would have differed if it was a Tomahawk missile versus a drone. Exactly so. Right. All right. So, but we'll still talk about drones because that's what everybody (laughs) does in
0: this context. Um,
1: As as, as our friend Ben Winters is fond of saying, we have to be careful to separate the platform from the policy. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's good.
0: Um, The other thing I want to emphasize is uh, it's not the case for those who don't follow uh, Yemen and developments there. This is a circumstance in which the United States, yes, was acting with uh, what passed for the uh, recognized government, of Yemen, so to some extent, that eliminates some of the international law issues that might otherwise be in, be raised by us using force there. So it's a consent scenario, um, but it's not like that central government exercised control effectively over all the territory, right? And certainly not exercising anything resembling control over the areas in which AQAP was operating and where Anwar al Awlaki was thought so to be. So I,
1: th- I actually think this is a really important and underappreciated part of this whole story, which is this would have been if, if Alaki was hiding in southern France. Um, right. There would never have been pressure brought to bear within the government. To authorize the use of military force in the first place. Instead, there would have been a request to the French government for some yep. kind of joint operation to capture and arrest him and bring him into law enforcement custody. That the the unique problem that arose in this case was that Alaki was quite intentionally um, in a part of the world where there was no functioning government authority in a position either on its own or in conjunction with a request from the US to place him into ordinary law enforcement process
0: right okay good so i think we're set up for the the circumstances so at this point anwar alak is still alive but he's he's pretty obviously and publicly on the list of people that have been targeted there's a green light to attack him if and when wait. wait, I mean,
1: wait, wait. it's reported he's on the list i mean the government's not confirming any of this right I yeah mean, the, that's what i said that's what yeah, i said yeah, reporting. Okay, okay
0: so it's uh so it's been reported publicly that he's on this list there's there are a number of stories about it so uh the father's trying to intervene before it's too late and it's before Judge Bates, John Bates, in the U.S. District Court for D.C. Uh, and in December 2010, uh, he dismisses, he, he issues an opinion granting the motion to dismiss. With the a case. whole lot of
1: alternative holdings.
0: Yeah. So do you want to run us through? Uh, this is
1: a sort of a Fed court's bonanza of topics. So um, I think there are basically gosh, five holdings um, in this in this opinion. So the first is that his father, Alaki's father, lacked standing as Alaki's next friend. And we've talked about next friend standing a bit um, to bring the lawsuit on Alaki's behalf, partly because um, Alaki's unavailability was of his own volition. So Bobby, unlike, say, Doe versus Mattis, where Doe is, you know, at the not through no fault of his own, unable to come to court himself. Um, if Alaki wanted to subject himself to American legal process, he had every opportunity to do it, right? So no standing as a next friend.
0: Okay, and then what about third-party standing? Why not let the father just, you know, it's, it's a father. What, what tighter
1: bond could, well, you know, varies, but... So I, think it's the, a the, bond. so I think the plausible So I think the concern was that you know although the father has an emotional obviously interest in the well being of his son, he doesn't necessarily have a legal interest yeah. in the health of his son. And in fact, I think it's well established in standing
0: law that parents of adult children who are of sound mind, right. at least when you're not in a position of actual further
1: legal, don't control, have standing to enforce their adult competent children's rights. That's right. Um. I so so I I have quibbles with this opinion. I don't have quibbles with at least that holding um I, you know the next friend holding i think is harder um the the judge base went on to say the threat of a future state-sponsored extrajudicial killing was not a cognizable tort under the alien tort statute so one of the claims um that alaki's father had brought um was about uh, uh the alien tort statute um that in any events the father was not authorized to bring an alien tort claim on behalf of his son and then Bobby last, and perhaps most important, and it's odd that he left this for last. That in any event, the entire lawsuit was barred by the political question doctrine.
0: Okay, so let's talk. We've talked endlessly on the program, but it's a deep dive, so we <coughs> let's dive deep. Political question doctrine,
1: go. Well, I mean, so the basic, <laughs> the basic gist of Judge Bates' reasoning is that the federal courts are con- basically constitutionally precluded from reviewing the ex ante determinations by the military of when it's going to use lethal force. Um, and that this is true as a matter of both textual commitment, that the Constitution commits this power to the political branches, and that's also true from the perspective of trying to figure out what the heck the judicially discoverable and manageable standards would be to make such an assessment.
0: So let's probe this and, 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 and flesh out whether we're persuaded by the political question aspect of this. Um, Short sure answer, no. Yeah. So if we imagine a totally different uh, fact pattern, but maybe one that's in the abstract kind of analogous. So there's well, actually, let's start with an easy one. Uh, someone wants to litigate because they, they view that the decisions of the commander-in-chief or maybe the, the combatant commander for the theater making really unsound decisions about where to which units to deploy and where they ought to deploy. Um, I think that's one that very clearly fits the definition of textually committed to the commander-in-chief, um, no judicially manageable standards. There, there are a host of reasons. Why. First of all, there would be a failure to state a claim probably. Um, but if they argued that some way or fashion – that the president's sort of military judgments about let's let's send this unit that way, let's deploy that unit there. That's probably going to get a political question ruling really any time, but I think that's distinguishable right. so, from what we've got here.
1: So I actually, I actually don't think in that hypothetical, the problem would be a lack of judicially manageable standards. I think that you, I think that your first instinct was the right one, which is if it's literally about, you know, I don't think the president is wise to deploy troops to this theater versus that theater. I think there's a pretty strong argument that that's the exact kind of superintendent's decision that the Commander in Chief Clause commits to the exclusive authority of the right. president. Which, um, yeah. Sorry. Um, the problem is is that, of course, the Commander-in-Chief, Clause, the Commander-in-Chief Clause does not thereby commit to the president the exclusive and unnerable authority to do whatever he wants to with the military. To anybody, right? And so steel seizures proves this, for, to take one example that comes ha- to mind. I mean, to going back to our last deep dive, Hamdi. I mean, right, yeah. Hamdi categorically rejected the notion that it was a non-judiciable political question if the president decided that a U.S. citizen was detainable as an enemy combatant. And just to bullet down, this may seem obvious, but I think it needs to be said, some of these fact patterns are
0: running through just involve a question of, well, does the president have the authority to make that kind of decision with no competing constitutional consideration running the other way? But as soon as you introduce a decision by the commander-in-chief properly within his role as commander-in-chief, yes, but to do something that, that in some way manifestly, and no one doubts, does impinge on a citizen's constitutional rights, you've got to consider the opposing force. You can't just say, well, no, but it's commander in chief decision.
1: And one of the things that frustrates me about how a lot of lower courts apply the political question doctrine in this context, and we've talked a bit before about like the private military contractor cases where you see a similar problem, is that they're not careful. Um, right, so Judge Bates, in his opinion, identifies a whole lot of reasons why maybe it's not a good idea to allow this kind of lawsuit. Um, he talks about the state secrets privilege. He talks about Bobby the Totten Bar, your favorite, right? Oh, yeah. Ta- um yeah. Although, so he ultimately doesn't rule on state secrets in No, no, I know. But my point is just that, like, there are a lot of, I think, extraneous considerations when the real question that the political question doctrine asks is, does the Constitution textually commit this entire adjudication to another branch? And if not, are there judicially manageable standards? And it seems to me that in Alaki's case, case, um, neither of those prongs are satisfied, right? That, that there's no textual commitment, especially after Hamdi, um, of the authority to use military force against a U.S. citizen, period. Now, there might be textual commitments of smaller decisions, but of the sort of the whole broad spectra, spectrum, I don't think so. And for laxly manageable standards, you know, the due process clause is hard to enforce. Um, but that doesn't mean it's it's right. not manageable. So, so I I think
0: I disagree on the textual commitment aspect. Insofar as there's certainly a textual commitment of military superintendent's authority and the conduct of military campaigns of which this was part yeah. um, by by you know premise of the argument here but I I also do think that there's some nuance to this judicially manageable standards. Uh, element that we can unpack now by reference to the testimony we both engaged in. You and I both testified to House Judiciary. Indeed, about this. House Judiciary at some point got real wound up with hypotheticals about, well, what if, what if, uh, based on this authority, that Obama guy decides to? I think the the, the Rand Paul hypo was to drone
1: strike someone of a, a cafe coffee shop in Houston, yeah. in Houston no less. Uh, just just to just to, to cycle back to someone who's in the news as we're recording this, right? Rand Paul filibustered John Brennan's nomination to be CIA director. Um, by the way, John Brennan, who ran Paul is now calling all kinds of nasty names in public, um, he filibustered his CIA nomination not because of any of the things he's now saying about Brennan, but because he wasn't happy with the answers he was getting about the U.S.'s view of its drone authority vis-a-vis its own citizens.
0: Yeah, so that, that was sort of the, that intersection of libertarianism and
1: citizenship-specific concerns. Um, which, but- I, by the way, which I've deeply criticized as libertarian hijacking where you sort of you know consume all the oxygen by focusing on a preposterous hypothetical that's never going to happen I certainly agree. It was a preposterous hypothetical, never happened. And I was and I was grilled
0: on this by one of the representatives. I remember. And I had. I to was sitting repeat, next to you at the I time. I repeatedly had to say. <laughs> and by the way, I th- I think that moment, of that scene, isn't that part of uh, Ben Wittes' uh, Twitter background? That he uses on Twitter. So if
1: you look at if you look at the <laughs> not, not his actual avatar, but the background at the top. Yeah, of yeah at the top so of the page. So you can see you quite clearly. You can see John Bellinger quite clearly, and you can see the back of my head. Oh, that's great. Um, I love that image and. Uh, Good free advertising. So yeah, I got repeatedly
0: asked, well what you know, what if he's gonna kill somebody yeah. in uh, Omaha or whatever? And I right. kept saying, like, no, it's not gonna happen. That can't happen, that'd be
1: illegal. No, no, no. But 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 this highlights the problem, which is if you apply the political question doctrine in the way that Judge Bates was purporting to, those distinctions become, I think, you know, if you're taking it seriously, irrelevant. Oh well, so I wanna here's where I wanted to go with this and bring up the judiciary thing. I
0: think one of the things that, that collectively, our panel, yes. Ballinger, Wittis, you and me, all brought out pretty clearly was you, there's more than one decision here yep. that could be the one that requires a judicially manageable standard before courts can intervene. Quite. So, what the the most powerful and recurring argument that opponents of any judicial involvement in this uh, tend to bring up is: you can't have judges on the battlefield. It's in the thick of battle. You cannot possibly have uh, someone who needs to pull the trigger now. It's the moment. And like, wait a minute, hold on, I got to get judicial clearance. Sure, okay, that's right. But notice this fact pattern. That's not what this was. There's a moment in time. In this model, where a person is put on the list of people who, if later on right. actionable intelligence locates them and it otherwise seems appropriate, then you can strike. I mean, uh, uh, and let me finish. This. and that's a place that does not implicate this idea of judges. battlefield emergency. Yeah, yeah. Um, no one is claiming. I certainly don't claim, and I don't actually think anyone who's who's supporting Al Rights in this scenario uh, and saying the Bates was wrong or others were wrong. I don't think anyone's claiming that once you get to the question of, all right, right now you're in combat, there's that guy, is it who you think it is? Do you have positive ID? Is it hostile intent, hostile force? Can you fire?
1: No one's saying you got to call a judge or have a judge involved right. at that right. point. No. Now, but but this, this, this gets to a broader point I want to make, which is, you know, I don't think the result. In the first district court decision was wrong. I just think some of the reasoning was. Because um, I think there's a very important distinction to draw between ex ante and ex-post review in this context. Um, now you made the point that a lot of time elapsed between when Alaki was placed on this kill list and when he was actually killed. Um, indeed, 14 months elapsed between the David Barron memo and when the strike is actually carried out that kills Alaki. So it's not like this was, you know, an emergency situation. Um, but I think part of the problem is There's a whole, we're going to get into this later, but there's a whole fight over sort of what due process requires in this context. And Eric Holder gives this famous speech at Northwestern Law School where he says due process is not a requirement of judicial process. Um, And I take exception to that in part, which is that I think due process is not necessarily a requirement to ex-ante judicial process, but certainly where we're talking about a deprivation of life it's a requirement at least of after the fact judicial process. And so I actually think there's a really important distinction to be drawn between an effort like the father's, to litigate all of this ex ante and an effort to look back and say, well, it happened, was it legal? Because among yeah. other things, this lawsuit, the first lawsuit, was never going to actually be able to answer some of the hardest questions, which is, you know, at the moment lethal force was used, was it justified? Was the strike proportional? Right? I mean, all these things that you can't decide in ex ante. Um right. just really quickly, the the one relevant Supreme Court precedent that I think might help to illustrate this. So you know, after, Kent's, after Kent State, after the Kent State shooting during the Vietnam War, there was an effort to basically enjoin the entire Ohio National Guard from doing anything, um, and to basically impose judicial supervision of how the Ohio National Guard trained its soldiers, how it like supervised them, to prevent this from happening again, basically in response to Kent State. And the Supreme Court, in a case called Gilligan versus Morgan, says, no, that's non-justiciable. It's a political question. Gilligan, I think, is often overread As standing for the proposition that courts don't have the power to interfere with military decision making. Um, Ten months after Gilligan versus Morgan, the court in Scheuer versus Rhodes allows a damages claim arising out of the exact same incident to go forward um, and distinguishes Gilligan on the ground that there's something qualitatively different about asking the court to decide in advance and indeed to supervise how the military does its job and asking the court to decide after the fact was this one particular use of force lawful. Um, and I think that that's really reflected in the Alaka case as well. What's the best? Ca- so
0: a counter argument to that is that is a compelling, persuasive distinction, except when the nature of the expected harm is life. Yeah, because it's the one it's the most obvious thing that can't be fully I, fixed. I, under I
1: completely understand that. But back to Tennessee versus Garner. Right. So Tennessee versus Garner, there are circumstances in which law enforcement officers are allowed to use lethal force. Definitely um, so, Right. No one's going to dispute that. You're never going to be able to assess that in advance, right? Whether those you might be able to say you might be able to say here are some of the criteria that will be relevant when the time comes to decide whether a use of lethal force is appropriate is lawful, but you're never actually going to be able to answer whether a specific le- use of force is legal in advance because you're not going to under you're not going to have the context. And so I understand that you know a damages suit is not going to bring back someone who was killed, but I think it is a and I've written about this ad nauseum. It is a far, I think, more holistic means of assessing the legality of a use of military force than some kind of ex ante relief that really Bobby was never going to actually get to the heart of the matter. So I find myself in the
0: unusual position of repeatedly trying to outflank you on your uh, on your liberties left <laughs> or right or whichever direction this is, because as the Rand Paul example shows, you shouldn't call it left right. It's just it's a circle. It's 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 a it's a matrix. How about that? Oh. Um, isn't it? So you said that you can't ever judge the moment of force in advance. Now, that's true, just like the battlefield moment. But you can judge in advance, and there's no impracticality to judge in advance, the nomination of a person to be added to the kill list.
1: Oh, no, I agree. Oh, wait. So, so I want to say, I, this is not me saying that I don't think anti-litigation is categorically inappropriate. Okay. It's that I don't think it will ever be sufficient. And so, right? So, so if we're talking about sort of from a from a blue sky perspective, how this should work? Like, I would not. If you gave me a choice between a, an ex ante lawsuit and ex-post lawsuit, I'm going to take the ex-post lawsuit. Um, I don't think they have to be exclusive. Like, right. I ex- think, except the person in interest never would. Um, well, of course not. But but again, I mean, I think that the ex ante lawsuit is only going to be able to answer a, you know a small sliver of the questions that the ex-post yes. lawsuit and just from a, you know, thinking about this from the government's perspective, if I, I mean, you know, this is my central objection to a bossy, Um When Justice Kennedy says damages lawsuits are especially problematic, right, my reaction is that's completely bass-ackwards. Um, because if I'm the government, I'd much rather worry, I'd much rather not be worried about a court stopping me before I do something in the name of national security um, than paying damages five years later because maybe we overstepped. Right. And I think right. that so so I'm not saying that I think ex post review, ex anti review shouldn't be available at all. I'm saying that it raises concerns that I think ex post review doesn't.
0: Yeah, I, I actually, you know, largely agree with all that, but I, I can't help it. You yeah, know, yeah. Ex- I don't to know. Exploit I exploit this opportunity. All right. to,
1: but but all this is to say, I still have problems with how Bates does the political. Like, given that he finds that there was no standing, I really would have stopped there. Well, yeah. So it's
0: interesting because he chooses to grab some extra issues. There's. Look, uh, for those who aren't lawyers, and indeed maybe some who, who are lawyers, there there's always this interesting question like, well, how come the judge answers some questions but doesn't answer others in a situation in which there's five possible ways to rule, any one of which would end it, why don't they just pick... Pick one and end it on that. And some judges do have sort of a principle of efficiency, where as a matter of principle, they're going to pick the narrowest ground, or or maybe the broadest ground. They're going to pick some ground and kind of leave it at that, and the rest just goes unaddressed. I th- I'm curious what you think because you're a closer observer of judicial behavior than I am, but I have this rough sense that it's just deeply Id- idiosyncratic, and yep. even for particular judges, yep. it kind of depends, and and it's going to be influenced by factors about how sure are they about how they'd come
1: out on certain arguments, and how they, and how they view the sort of what what an appeal would look like, right? So I think, you know, Judge Bates might have been thinking about how you know, at least some of these grounds might have been vulnerable to, vulnerable to appeal, but certainly not all of them. Not all of them. So,
0: but And yet he doesn't. So conspicuously, he chooses at the end not to actually say anything on the merits of the state secrets argument. Which, of which course, is, is
1: looming in the background because the factual allegations in the father's complaint are only allegations. And the only way you're going to be able to prove them yeah. is by taking discovery of the CIA. And he, he goes
0: to the point, there's about two and a half pages on this, and it seems like he's going to say, oh, and a third reason this right. can't go forward is state off. secrets. And he says, well, uh, we're not going to rule on this um, it's kind of curious I, I think that's just sort of an idiosyncrasy of you know at that point the opinion's getting long he's already sunk a ton of time but in also it. I mean, he if, may be feeling unsure about how that was going to come well, down because
1: especially I mean, if, if ever there was an argument that there was a constitutional right that would override the state secret's privilege it might be the right to life it's just it's funny that he didn't just have a footnote saying like you know I'm not going to address it, other listen, arguments listen there's a lot I think that I uh, I, am, I, I have been a critic of Judge Bates in other contexts, but I am a deep admirer of his intelligence and his capability. And I'm, I don't think this is one of his best opinions. And I think it's, it's a reflection of the, of the both legal and I think moral Absolutely. complexities of the case. Well, so
0: I'm, I'm a big John Bates fan. And I will say that I think that when you read it, uh, there's a lot that's written here that shows he's very aware yep. of just how difficult this and is as a policy and legal
1: matter. All right. So why don't we why don't we yep. sort of fast forward a bit? So so this is December 2010. Um, from the U.S. I mean, the next thing that happens on the U.S. side in May, um, there's an attempted strike against Alaki that misses. Um, September 30th, there's another attempted strike. This one succeeds. Alaki is killed. Yeah, and not just him. Um, not just him. Um, I think, what, there were... I think his son his, uh, was present? His son... I thought was, that was his a, son present at another strike. That son. was a subsequent strike a little okay, bit later. you're right about that. Okay. Um, his, son is, his son is not targeted, right. but has killed as collateral, collateral damage, damage in yeah. a, in another strike uh, not that long thereafter. Um so, and indeed, his daughter is actually killed in 2017 in a joint U.S.-UAE operation as collateral damage. Collateral damage, damage yeah. Um, all right, so following on the sort of the actual successful drone strike, um, now Nasser sues not as his son's next friend, but as his son's estate. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is, in effect, the
0: executor of the estate. I don't know if he formally was in that position, but he's d- identified in the caption, it's the personal representative of the estate and, uh, and now he's and seeking damages. Exactly so. And this one doesn't go before Judge Bates. This one goes to uh, Rosemary Collier, uh, also the D.C. Uh, District
1: Court. Uh, but it also fails, though for –
0: different reasons.
1: Um, so this is, I mean, I, I have to say, I, I have some quibbles with Judge Bates' opinion in what we might call Alaki 1. I have a lot of quibbles with I Judge anticipated Collier's your might, uh, decision you, in Al-Awlaki 2. So
0: this is the scenario where you you were taking the position that as a matter of sort of institutional legal design for national security accountability, what you what you most want to have would be post-hoc damages actions where you can look at the actual facts such as they are yep. and, uh, and provide sort of post-hoc accountability that doesn't, As directly tie the government's hands on the front end.
1: Correct. Okay. So um, Judge Collier um, holds uh, – reaches six holdings to go along with Judge Bates' five. Um, The first and perhaps I think the most, I think, correct, Bobby, of the six is that the political question doctrine now, she thinks, does not bar um, the lawsuit – um, and here she actually draws much of the distinction that I was trying to draw, which is there's just nowhere near the same kind of either textual commitment or lack of judicially manageable standards when a court is simply asked to assess a prior action by the government for its legality. Um, analogizing, I think, to the Gilligan scheuer distinction that I was just making, right okay. that there's there's just something different about trying to stop the military and/or the CIA in its lawful covert role from acting. Um, in a way that's, you know, versus trying to sue them for liability after the fact. Um, The second holding, and this one, Bobby, is just preposterous, is that the allegations in the complaint failed to plead a seizure under um, the Fourth Under the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth right. Amendment uh, sorry. The, so the claim, right, is for, Fourth and Fifth Amendment violations. Right. Um, right. Fourth Amendment seizure, Fifth Amendment procedural, and substantive right. due process. So just to unpack it for the, the
0: non-Fourth Amendment nerd listeners, uh, the Fourth Amendment, most famously, everybody knows, it, it regulates uh, search and seizure. Everyone thinks about the, the, the search investigative part. part. But it's also about the
1: power to arrest. It's also about the seizure of a person. Um, and it is settled beyond peradventure that a use of force by the government, um, whether it results in the death of the sus of the target or not, yeah. is a seizure.
0: No, that's right. That's, Force that's, equals seizure. That's kind of a, a generic kind of familiar, familiar it's just, claim.
1: So it's, it's wrong, and the problem is it's wrong in a way that actually allows her to duck what I think is the hardest question in the whole case. Like, I, I think the strongest claim that the father had was the Fourth Amendment, you know, unreasonable seizure claim. Of course, I don't think it, might, I don't think it would be a winner. I think we ever actually right. got to all the – right. if the government because ever – Because
0: she did find, right, that there was a Fifth Amendment process claim.
1: And we'll get there, But right? But I think if, if the government was ever put to its proof, I think they win, right? Because I think they had yeah. evidence that would have supported all this. But the point is just that um, the Fourth Amendment seizure claim – also, was the one for which there was the strongest Bivens precedent.
0: Ah, so that's that's why I, that's why I in kind of jumped the line for you and inserted the Fifth Amendment point. So there's the Fourth Amendment seizure claim and the very similar looking Fifth Amendment substantive and procedural due process claims. Which you know, like a lot of amendments, there there's some there's some overlapping. Uh, you might even say per numbers there.
1: Although uh, although in this, con- I actually think this is actually a case where the substantive and procedural due process arguments are actually quite easy to see the the difference between right. The procedural due process argument is that the government didn't afford a Alaki an adequate opportunity to prove that he wasn't the bad guy they said he was. The substantive one is that he just had a right to not be killed in the first place. Right. Not be killed based on whatever the.
0: the circumstances were, uh, the sort of thing you sort of see all the time in in constitutional tort cases, for example. Now, she says that those constitutional claims are adequately pled. They can go forward. They're going to fail for For, other reasons, right? Right. And we're going to get to that. But but you're saying that as we head into the Bivens discussion- Keep in
1: mind that she's taken the Fourth Amendment off the table through a completely inaccurate holding about what is a Fourth Amendment seizure. Okay. So let's talk about Bivens, which is the
0: case name shorthand for the proposition that you could sue the government sometimes for- Not the government. Officers. The the government officials. Sorry, you're quite right to draw that distinction. You can sue the officers involved for damages, for violation of of certain constitutional rights in certain settings. The scope of when you get to sue, that's one of your favorite (laughs) issues. You're saying that there's a little more bandwidth for suing if it's a Fourth Amendment seizure than if it's a Fifth Amendment substantive due process violation.
1: So, listen, I'm going to get in trouble with folks who know Bivens well because I think everyone's going to argue that if ever there was a case where national security should be a special factor, this is it. But before we get to the special factors analysis, the first step in the Supreme Court's approach to deciding whether to, quote, extend Bivens, unquote, into a new context is to ask whether it really is a new context. Um, Have the courts previously considered a claim like this one? And Bobby, there is perhaps no more common Bivens claim than an excessive force claim. Um, under the Fourth Amendment, that that in the context of conducting a search and seizure, the government used excessive force. Now, this is different in important respects. This is not law enforcement. This is either the military or the CIA, right? This is overseas. I mean, there are lots of complications. But just from the first place where you start the analysis, by taking the Fourth Amendment off the table, you take away the most well-established, least questioned body of pro-Bivens
0: case law. So you're saying if if she'd kept the Fourth Amendment in as she properly should have, it doesn't mean that there would be a Bivens remedy, but it would only fail to occur, that is, you. the only reason you would still get to the conclusion that there's no Bivens remedy here is because there's the special factor of national security and military affairs right. as an overlay. It's not like a regular excessive right. force Which case. is where she
1: ends up anyway. So Judge Collier on the Fifth Amendment claims, which she does allow to go forward, says, I'm not going to recognize the Bivens remedy because net, uh, interference with national security and interference with foreign policy are both special factors, counsel, and hesitation. Um, at the time that this was decided in April of 2014, I actually think it was a little bit. It went a little bit beyond where some of the precedents then were. Although I think it's actually now, in retrospect, deeply consistent with Abasi. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly, where where I don't think I, I you know. My own blue-sky view is that Bivens is the right way to do these kinds of cases. The Supreme Court's hostility to Bivens, and especially the Supreme Court's embrace in a bossy of sort of barring Bivens when you're trying to challenge not rogue actions by ultra-virus officers, but conscious high-level policy decisions— in the national security space. You know, I, I, I criticized this decision at the time it was decided. I think it would be very hard to criticize it on the same terms after abassi Interesting. So this was pre-Abbasi. What about what was the most relevant precedent for them? Was it El Shifa? So no, I actually think the most relevant precedent was um, the DC Circuit had a case called Doe versus Rumsfeld, mm-hmm. um, which was a Bivens case, I think, brought by former Iraqi detainees um, in 2012, where the DC Circuit says um, you know special factors, national security special factor counseling hesitation. So, Bobby, there had already been by the time this had decided in April 2014 a raft of national security special factor cases. I actually think those cases were not I think they're wrongly decided, but I think a bossy. you know, I lost that fight in Abbasi. Right. So 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 she she
0: and on your account, she's making missteps on the way, but she's actually getting to a place that's pretty defensible under the prob- what you view as problematic but nonetheless existing precedent. This is
1: exactly right. That 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 in retrospect the no Bivens holding is where the Supreme Court ends up in a bossy. I I wish it weren't so, because I think the regime would make a lot more sense if there was a meaningful specter of a damages action, if the government actually ever did act in a manner that was unconstitutionally. And instead, we're left to sort of assess for ourselves the merits of the legal arguments, because Judge Collier cuts off the cause of action. And I think this is a point that often gets lost on non-lawyers. When a court usually holds that there's no cause of action, they end up getting rid of the case without passing upon the merits of the underlying claim one way or the other. So there is no actually. You can't point to this decision and say the district court upheld the use of a drone against al You can just say it
0: throughout the lawsuit. Right. This is beyond the reach of the courts. Now, neither one of the opinions, the pre-drone uh, strike injunctive relief claim or the post-drone strike uh, monetary damages claim, neither one of the opinions getting rid of those cases ever actually reached the merits, as we said earlier, of the state secrets And neither's appealed. It, neither was appealed,
1: which, which I think yeah. was a conscious. I, I think was a conscious choice on the part of Halaki's lawyers. Yeah, um, that that you know, for as for as problematic as some of the analysis might have been, for as susceptible to reversals might have been, if you look at the D.C. Circuit, especially circa 2010, for the Judge Bates mm-hmm. opinion 2014, for the Judge Collier decision, they weren't going to do any better on appeal, and they were yeah. going to create precedent that applied to other cases. Well, and as you say, Bivens a uh, president in particular, already was unfavorable to him. Um, I think in both cases,
0: had it somehow gotten beyond these threshold arguments, yeah. the state secrets privilege would've eventually have reared was its going head to submarine both no of these qu- cases.
1: Or, or at least there, that would have been the fight, right? Which yeah. is, you know, does the state secrets privilege get in the way of this kind of constitutional claim? The answer probably would have been yes. Um, so instead, now, right about the same time, Judge Collier's decision comes down in April 2014. Bobby, the next step actually comes not that long thereafter. Um, or I'm sorry. Actually, the next step happened a little bit earlier, um, which was the release of this DOJ white paper. Yeah.
0: Now this is really something. Okay, talk about talk about what a white paper is as a cat as a formal category, or is it a formal?
1: category? It's not a formal. A, a white go, paper. Yeah. So, so I, uh, let me let me let me take a stab and tell me if you agree with this. A white paper is a summary memorandum that binds absolutely nobody. That is, in some ways, a memo to file that basically is trying to sort of put on paper the relevant legal analysis in a way, Bobby, that can be shared with individuals who don't have access to the actual like core analysis, and so before the Allawi white paper, the one we were most there was a an NSA FISA white paper, right, a Je- Justice Department white paper about about, the, about the, the TSP, the Terror Surveillance Program. Exactly. So, so the basic idea is, and you actually
0: see white papers used. We have a lot of international listeners, and so in some of your countries, it's very common for the government to release a publicly consumable like a policy draft. legal memo. Yeah, and, and it says like here's here's our white paper
1: that lays out our position.
0: Uh, in American practice. That's not common, especially
1: um, now. Well, and, and indeed, not only is it not common. But what we're about to discuss is going to kill it. Um, oh, but you, you think it's like really kind of shown, like ah, there's a reason we don't bother with wait, this. You no, know, I want to find the quote because there's a quote. <laughs> Charlie Savage has this quote in one of his books. Um, Got be power wars. Sort of. There's a no more white papers quote. But so let's not So okay, yeah, that's great. Okay, so, so I want to find it. But but anyway, right. before we get there, so so in um, Michael Isakoff in February 2013 gets his hands on a DOJ white paper. Um, my we don't I don't think we actually formally know, Bobby, why this was prepared, but I do have a guess. Um, I alluded before to the speech that Attorney General Holder gave at Northwestern Law School mm-hmm. in, I think, the summer of 2012, and maybe off on the month, sometime in 2012, um, about the Alaki case and about due process yeah. in the context of targeted killing against a U.S. citizen. I think the white paper was prepared in conjunction
0: with that speech. Probably so. And, of course, we, we later on find out that as of late 2010, the Office of Legal Counsel, as you said earlier, had already more or less mapped out the executive branch's legal position on is it in fact lawful to, to use targeted lethal force against a citizen. Later on, as this stuff becomes politically sensitive, Holder gives his talk at Northwestern. So probably the white paper was either – contemporaneous with that or something else. They also needed to give responsive documents to congressional, to members of Congress who were digging into this. Right. So a white paper is a great way to do this without actually formally turning over your actual internal legal analysis. You kind of figure out how much of that you want to convey. Right. And
1: you more or less sort of launder it a bit and give it as a white paper. So for about 15 months, the white paper was all we had. And, you know, we could talk about the white paper, but I think subsequent developments, it, it was overtaken by subsequent events. Um, and the subsequent event that overtakes the white paper is the FOIA lawsuit by the New York Times, and I think Charlie, which our friend Charlie Savage was at the heart of this, against DOJ for the underlying OLC memo on which the white paper was clearly based. Um, and what, what this all culminates in is a June 2014 Second Circuit decision holding that the white paper publicized sufficient sufficient details about the analysis of the OLC memo that the OLC memo was no longer categorically protected by Exemption 1 of FOIA. Um and then indeed the the OLC memo was with redactions subject to disclosure under FOIA. Um and so the government's effort to voluntarily disclose part of its legal analysis ended up being a hook that was used against it to compel it to disclose all of its legal analysis. So let's let's consider
0: that. Should we be happy about that legal principle that if the government goes to the trouble of trying to create something that it can share with the public? that it pays this cost for having done so? Because what a powerful disincentive that
1: creates. So as as, as someone named Steve Vladek wrote in April of 2014, um, which by the way, because there was an original panel opinion, it was amended. So actually, the original panel opinion was in April. Um, In the long term, the Second Circuit's rulings will disincentivize any disclosure of secret legal rationales, lest even fairly limited disclosures empower FOIA-based arguments such as those upon which the Court of Appeals seized. And it gets better. Um, In response to the Second Circuit decision, the White House counsel, I think it might have been Neil Eggleton at the time, um, quote, I'm now quoting from Power Wars, um, swiftly issued instructions to the Obama legal team, throttle back the legal policy speeches, and no more white papers. It's really something. And, and that reference
0: to the speeches is yeah. especially important. Because that was... As we noted, there were only a couple of white papers, but the speeches... There were a lot of speeches. There's this wonderful book that Ken Anderson and Ben Witt has put together called Speaking the Law. And it's a compendium with annotations and commentary and context about all the whole series throughout eight years of national security legal policy speeches that various figures from Jay Johnson, Derek Holder delivered over those years. That was this... I think this really admirable pattern of legal policy transparency by the Obama team to constantly try to be out there not satisfying many observers, I recognize, but still saying a lot more than is normally said about the legal foundations of national security policy. So you see that the spillover effect of the FOIA ruling by the Second Circuit was not just to disincentivize white papers, which were like once every six years, but the speeches themselves, which
1: were happening all the time. That's that's too bad. I I, I agree. I mean, I – I think we're better off for having the OLC opinion. I mean, I think there are actually some important differences between the the depth of analysis in the OLC opinion and the white paper. But, you know, I think the goal here should be more disclosure, not less. Yeah, I got to say, I think that. uh the,
0: there's not much in the you know once Holder had given his talk in Northwestern. There's not a lot of real nuance that you couldn't more or less infer from what their position probably of, was. So I
1: mean, let's, let's so so I think the one thing that's left for us to discuss, right, is the actual the actual legal. the actual legal, the
0: actual legal <laughs> analysis.
1: Um, and Wait, the, should we do
0: that? I mean, or should we just pivot over to frivolity and not do any
1: law? Well, we're already at fifty-one yeah. minutes. All so right, may let's go jump quickly, quickly to the, the merits. Then. So so it seems like there are. Three principal legal arguments that the OLC memo engage, that the OLC memo engages with. Real quick, uh, so we're only going to
0: talk about these U.S. citizen right. specific uh, or U.S. US rights holding specific scenarios. We're not going to talk about things that would be just as applicable if the target was a Yemeni
1: citizen who's in AQAP. Right. So the, although I think we agree that, that anything that would be valid as applied to a locky would apply off for sure to a non-citizen. It's just that the constraints- and, and vice versa,
0: right? He's, he's certainly no worse off than a non-U.S. member of AQAP. Right. He made he's be only off. He's
1: better off right. in some respects. Okay. So so if the U.S. has the authority to use force against a Lockheed, it should follow that anyone that a non-citizen— Okay. Anyway, we're on the same page. Um, so, so to me, the three big arguments in the OLC opinion— are first the argument about why the process al Laki received satisfied the due process clause. Um, second, the argument that there's no actual affirmative right to judicial review. Um, and then third, the public authority defense um, as an explanation for why the criminal statutes that actually seem to make it a crime to kill a U.S. citizen overseas don't actually apply to al case. Those to me are the big three, buckets. Okay. Am, am I missing anything? No, no, let's
0: just – we can jump, jump right in with that so the the due process concern. Um,
1: you want to map out so, roughly so how they analyze that. Again, this. there's substantive and there's procedural, right? And the substantive due process argument is: Does the U.S. citizen have a right to not have his life taken away if certain things are true? If the, even you know, even if the government finds certain things about to be true about him, and I gotta say here, I'm with I'm with the government. I mean, I think you know, assuming the U.S. can jump through the hoops and can show that an individual really is you know actively engaged in hostilities against the United States. And as the memo concludes, right, poses an imminent threat, um, right, right? Is sort of an ongoing operational actor um, in the midst of planned and continuing attacks against the U.S. We're assuming the factual predicate, but you have to at this point of the analysis. So I'll,
0: I'll read now. This is actually going to come from the, the dreaded white paper, oh. but it's it's this is the same stuff. This is this is the set of conditions. That the this is the cash out of the legal analysis, and so the government's position is at least where the following fact pattern is asserted by us, and the following circumstances are true. When that's the case, it doesn't violate due process to use lethal force against a citizen knowingly. So here's what they said. First, critically, uh, the U.S. citizen in question is believed to be quote a senior operational right. leader not that, just a foot soldier not and not just a propagandist right so there's a seniority element there that's kind of vague and unspecified but it's still something but most importantly it's the operational involvement which creates a much tighter nexus with uh, an immediacy of sorts with threats to life um and not just in general for any terrorist organization, but basically for AUMF-covered groups, uh, written here as Al Qaeda or associated forces. Now, that's that's just the beginning. It's got to be a person who's in that narrow category, or or the white paper just doesn't speak to it. When the person's in that category, the the position of the government was and is that you can at least attack them without ex ante judicial involvement. Where one. And here's the phrase I'm quoting, an informed high level official of the U.S. government has determined that the targeted person, individual, poses an imminent threat of violent attack against the United States. Please remember that word imminent threat. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But in addition to the requirement that the person poses an imminent threat of violent attack against the U.S., second, capture is infeasible and the United States continues to monitor whether capture becomes feasible. And then third, the operation would be conducted in a manner consistent with law of war principles. So the big moving parts, Steve— was, I, was there also a fourth and the highest
1: officers involved?
0: Oh, that was, may not have been the white pair. That may have been the OCD That might be, but that's kind of subsumed within the, the highest consideration yeah. with our government. That's the part I think a lot of people say, like, yeah, yeah, you guys all decided internally.
1: I, I actually—I I think that actually has teeth, but okay. Yeah, I, I
0: agree. I actually think—I think that think elevation of the decision matters. Um, the key, though, the thing to focus on, it's the imminent threat test— and feasibility of capture. Feasibility of capture is huge, right? So this is the answer to the cafe. In, this is one part of the answer. There are many, right? To the cafe in Houston, the guy on
1: vacation in the it's south. It's like of a France. necessity argument, right? It's not if if, if Alaki were in a place where he could be subject to the long arm of the law, there'd be no need right. to use this kind of military force against. And him. this is where, and so
0: this is where the position as to using force against Al Qaeda members who are U.S. citizens
1: yep. is much more constrained than the position was as to non-citizens. Right. Now, where, b- by the way, I realize that I'm like all kinds of people. Are like, wait, who who? Is this person who's pretending to be Steve this week? He's like okay with using military force in this context. Own it, man! Don't don't. I be, am. Yeah, I love it. I it's
0: I, I will keep trying to outflank you if I can, just to kind of further no, no, confuse our oh, listeners. Don't worry,
1: we're getting to the point where I'm going to be really really critical of of oh, the because right, okay, we got to disagree on something. Um, actually, it's not actually my criticism is not the opinion. My criticism is of people overreading the opinion as deciding something it didn't decide. Fair enough. Okay, so uh, I- infeasibility of capture is a critical point, yep. and by the way, that begins
0: to bring this more into line with those who would like to see a international. National human rights law framework applied here, and once you framed it that way, that leads to the next element, which is from a human rights law perspective, don't you only ever use force when it's you know strictly necessary to save life? Well, and here we're told the policy includes this element that the individual poses an imminent threat of violent attack. Now, no one was claiming that at any of the moments when drone strikes, f- drones fired on Al-Awlaki, that he was about to shoot somebody like a, like a hostage taker who's about to shoot a hostage. Right. Eminence has a term of art meaning. And as you know, I've written a lot about this. I, if you're interested in this in detail, do a search for my name. Do, do uh, Chesney Post War. Read that article in Harvard National Security Journal. There you go. You'll see more than you ever wanted to know about the complicated over time meaning of imminence. The bottom line, my friends, is that imminence has long been understood by the U.S. government in this context as meaning both strict temporal imminence, where something's literally about to happen, but also a more conceptual imminence. You might say not imminence at all, but something else, where there's an ongoing continuous threat and you don't have. Good reason to think you'll ever be there at the moment that it actually becomes strictly imminent in a literal sense. So, for
1: example, I mean, if you knew that a Lockheed was about to get on a plane to a part of the world where you actually would be in a position to affect a law enforcement seizure. I actually think you wouldn't satisfy mm-hmm. this prong. Right, because it would no longer be the last clear window of opportunity. As
0: as Professor Mike Schmidt once described it, the last clear window of opportunity emerges when you have a situation like this where there's a right. uh, someone you believe to be a terrorist operational leader, they're in an area you cannot feasibly arrest them in, and actionable intelligence emerges that for the next two hours he's going to be in this car going
1: down this road with no uh, innocent bystanders. So, so, so this goes to why I think the substantive due process analysis, at least at the time it's rendered, which is in July of 2010, holds water, right? Um, the procedural analysis, I think, is subsumed largely within that, that the relevant government decision makers, you know, ran this through the the, the rigmarole, right, that they 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 did their due diligence, that it wasn't feasible to provide ex ante judicial process. Uh, this is where I think we get the unfortunate line from Attorney General Holder that due process is not a requirement of judicial process. What the opinion actually says, Bobby, is a little bit more modest, Um I want to quote from this. The opinion says on page 40, um, da, 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 um, the, uh, when all these things are true, um, it's such that the Constitution would not require the government to provide further process to the U.S. person before using such force. Not never, right? And I think this gets a lot, the Holder speech didn't say that. And I actually think this was a place where the Holder speech was, was either Insufficiently careful or intentionally misleading.
0: Well, if you were on his team and you said, "Hey, boss, we need to add that in there," wouldn't someone else say, "Like, hold on, we're we're litigating these cases and taking the position that there's no because there's no Bivens action in our view, right?" And
1: so, but at the very least, you can say at the very least, you can say, you know, at a minimum, right? At the very least, the Constitution doesn't because here's the problem: the problem is that it all gets reported as there's no right to judicial process at all. And I, as you know, as folks hopefully figured out by now, my view is you know there may not be a right to ex ante process, but there sure as heck ought to be a right to ex post process. I, it's clear you think that, but Holder couldn't. I mean, his litigating position for his department no, 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 was no, no. that there was. I'm not saying t- that he should right. have said that, right? I'm just saying that there that, that he the the opinion takes no position on after the fact process, right? Um, right? It didn't it didn't even flag the idea that there could be, but presumably because they'd have to then say like, of course, we oppose that idea. Well, I don't. I, I think you can, listen, I think you can have it both ways. The point is that it, they didn't, and so some nuance got lost. The reason why I say all this is because my principal problem with the OLC opinion, oh, and then, we, we should, do you want to talk a lot about the public authority defense? Um, I, little, we, we just
0: say, so there was also reference, These not just to constitutional arguments. claims, but uh, to two other things Statutory arguments about in there are several Federal criminal statutes Designed to protect U.S. Citizens Especially abroad. 18 U.S.C. 1119 Foreign murder of U.S. nationals Right And so the, the government's response And I think this is just a, Kind of a no brainer But maybe others disagree um, That it's implied That uh, proper public authority if, if law enforcement Otherwise lawfully does it If the military Otherwise lawfully does it Right this, is, this was not a statute Intended to create Sort of the equivalent Overseas for lethal force Of the domestic Non-detention act So if
1: you So, so if you accept The analysis that the strike was lawful under was otherwise lawful under domestic international. It's like it's like the 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 assassination executive order and the Hayes pardon, which we're memo, coming to, we're coming to, right? That. Um, which is the notion that like if it's if it's an act of war, that's yeah. different. Well, it's from, like Hamdi, right? It's yes. like the
0: plurality in Hamdi. It's like yes. look if this was compatible, and that's why that's in the right. uh, memo itself. Right.
1: Also. So the public authority defense gets around the criminal statutes, and then there's the uh, assassination ban.
0: Right. So since uh, since the 1970s, there's been an executive order where the president directs the executive branch categorically do not engage in assassination, and the terms not defined. Originally, the language for Ford was political assassination. Since Carter, it's just been assassination. And many, many people like to use the word assassination kind of colloquially to describe anything that's a targeted killing. Any extrajudicial killing. Well, not, especially ones where you know exactly who you're going for. Because right. depending on what your own- Sorry, sort of any business, targeted extrajudicial Yeah, exactly. Killing. Exactly. Okay, sorry. And, and so there was some talk about like, well, surely this violates the assassination ban. Um, and it's been the executive branch position going back a long ways, including uh, to the memorandum you mentioned a moment ago, Hayes Parks wrote a memo for, he was a longtime eminence grease of uh, the law of war uh, for the U.S. government and the and keeper me- of the law of war manual. Indeed, and, yes, that too. And, and Hayes wrote a very influential memo basically saying, look, it, and this is not the only source of this claim, but his is the most cited one, um, saying that it's not an assassination by definition if what's going on is a lawful act of war or otherwise lawful use of government force, especially in a context where it's uh, a self-defense scenario. And this is you know, all subsumed within the framework of, we're at war with Al-Qaeda and AQAP. He's a member. Right. He's operationally involved, et
1: cetera. OK, so, so that gets us basically most of the way home. Here's the problem, right? And I've been, I've been saving up Yeah, this. it's OK now. I'm ready for real Steve to come back. It's like how, you're going to rip off
0: your mask, Mission Impossible seriously,
1: style. How do we know? Or or, or Arya Stark style? Ooh, very good. Yeah, so, uh, how, oh, um, by the way, countdown. How long till Game of Thrones? Too long. Um, how do we know any of this is true? Any of the factual allegations, yes. you mean? Or yeah. Yes. So so right. imagine I am someone who is not a you know who who accepts that we are in a state of hostilities with AQAP. Yep. Who accepts that the US is allowed to use lethal force, even against its own citizens, if they are otherwise you know properly subject to force in the on the constant laws of war, um, and who accepts that you know. If the allegations are as the government says they are, this was an appropriate case for that. How do I know that?
0: So here's a question I don't know the answer to. But in the filings that uh, were made in the prior litigations, but especially before Bates, yeah. um, some amount of declaration material was provided from the executive branch yeah. to, the, to the judge to explain why it was they were claiming that the political question doctrine applied and i believe that in those documents there were there were sworn representations about what the intelligence shows about him now that doesn't make it true but it, but there's levels of how do i know it's true right so, there's right. no one's put anything forward that's not this case i don't think no, i think
1: they put forward right some evidence some evidence and we talked and we talked in our homedy deep dive about why in Homdi in some evidence was insufficient to justify the military detention of a u.s citizen are you are you sure that it was only some evidence and doesn't count higher well, so there was no opportunity for adversarial testing, right? That's so, a, but okay, but that's a different deal. No, but this is where I'm going, right? So, I actually think that Hamdi, in order, you and I both agree that detention and targeted killing are not one is not a subset of the other. That they're yeah. different authorities that sometimes overlap, but sometimes are different yeah. because they're asking different questions. Closely related, but different. Different. Right. Questions. It's a Venn diagram. It's not a subset. Bingo. Um, I still believe that the due process right the Hamdi court not just plurality because you don't right, get sign on to this part of the opinion the Hamdi court recognizes for a U.S. citizen to contest the legality of his detention before a neutral decision maker ought to extend at least in retrospect to the legality of the use of force against the U.S. citizen and if I believe that then I believe that some evidence is insufficient and that there has to be an opportunity again back not to beat the dead horse at least after the fact to meaningful adversarial testing of the government's factual proffer. Well, this certainly goes hand-in-hand hand with
0: your view that there should, in fact, be a Bivens window here. You'd have to find that the interests balance out differently than the courts have found yep. it, that the national security concerns after the fact, right. r- retrospectively, uh, would at least get you beyond the special circumstances limit on Bivens.
1: You'd still have a state secrets problem, and, and I know this would be fine with you. I have, no, no, I have a way around it. OK, so so there's a lot of so there's a lot of writing after a about how to fix this problem. And there's a if, if people want to see a fascinating exchange, check out the exchange between Alberto Gonzalez and me in the GW Law Review, where Alberto Gonzalez was saying we need more judicial review of drone strikes, uh, which I think might have been a surprising position coming from the former Attorney General of the United States. But what he was calling for was something that, was, that some other folks were calling for at the same time, which was some kind of, um, our, our friend Amos Giora, I think, was, was one of the, the proponents of this idea, was a drone court, kind of like the FISA court. Where the government could go and get some kind of ex ante drone warrant, I think Alan Dershowitz, back when he was oh, back works. when he still had at least a, a sliver of credibility, um, was making. And my response was, you guys have the exact right idea and the exact wrong way to do this. Right, that what we need is a statutory cause of action that creates a limited right to judicial review. Have it, you know, create all kinds of secrecy procedures, right, to protect the the government's interest in the classified information. Um, A limited civil cause of action for nominal damages, call it $1, in the D.C. District Court um, after the fact. The statutory – if you create a statutory cause of action, you have no Bivens problem. You have no qualified immunity problem because you can override that by statute. And at least in my view, although I know you disagree, you have no state secrets problem because Congress has the power – I th- I believe to override the state secret Bobby, especially if they're doing it in a context where they're still protect- providing mechanisms for the government to protect the secrecy of its information. So
0: on that, of course, the truth is we have no idea. That would be such a, a wide open question yeah, yeah. that there's no telling how courts would come down on it. But say, maybe, yeah. maybe they would allow it, maybe they wouldn't. But at the end of the day, it seems to me that the, the fundamental danger there, it depends a lot whether this danger is present on whether or not you're gonna actually allow the the, the estate to come in with whatever lawyers yeah, they want. Yeah or another version they special can come advocates. in but they have to have spe- you have to have people who can get clearances or guardian ad litem type special advocates who stand in for right. the portion of the let's assume for example that the reason the government is so sure about Anwar al laki this purely hypothetical yeah. is that we actually have the most valuable asset in high IQ we've got a mole inside AQAP. it's yep. the most sensitive secret that could possibly be yep. um, and in theory maybe there's some way to get that information out but Boy, you'd have to—I mean, to, to a process like this—but my
1: God, you'd have to be
0: careful with how you convey that so, information.
1: So, as I wrote in the proposal that I that I made way back when, um, I would do a cleared counsel, right? Cleared counsel who are who have already been approved by the government to have a TSFCI clearance. Um, we have that in the Guantanamo context, right? We have other situations where that's true. Um, it's not perfect. I mean, I don't want right. to say that I've solved that. I've, I, right. So, I for example, like you can't cross-examine the deck. Listen, right? I haven't squared the circle, right? But the point is that would be, to me, infinitely preferable to the alternative, which is we are left to take the government's word for it. Because at the yeah. end of the day, my problem with the OLC opinion is that it was written 14 months in advance. Right? We have no way of assessing, based on the OLC opinion, whether at the time the government actually used lethal force against Anwar al-Awlaki. The conditions laid out by the OLC opinion were in fact present and satisfied. Well, just to to go back to that point a little bit, the thing you could test then was they
0: were making a substantive judgment about whether he was in AQAP and mm-hmm. whether he had a certain role, membership.
1: You could you could you could assess membership. That that could have been assessed then.
0: It might have changed by the time. But they, but, they
1: but how went. do you assess imminence fourteen months in advance?
0: Right, yeah, you can't. No, but that again, that's my same point. There's there are multiple questions that some
1: admit to judicial second guessing. Some of them don't. And this is my point, which is that the OLC opinion to me is actually a generally satisfying document with regard to the questions it set out to answer, but leaves, to me, the most important questions unanswered because there was no way at the time it was written for David Barron to answer those questions. Here's a question about the
0: idea of controlling the – so obviously the great fear here with a mechanism like this is you, you over-deter the executive branch, like what if there's a million-dollar judgment? So you say – Nominal how, damages. Nominal damages. But then then does it under-deter? Like what good comes from this other than – I mean you're going to risk some security by sharing some of this information. What, what do you get – Going forward yeah. if it's a one dollar deal.
1: It's like you, the USFL judge. You get common law. You get you get judgment common law, as in the FISA context. You get secret judge made common law that actually ought to, you know, bind maybe strong, but at least shape policy making judgments. Now, mind you, in this context, we're talking about one person to date, right? And so it's not clear how law that would come out of an Alaki case would necessarily bind for example targeted killings of non-citizens with no connection to the US in other contexts but again i mean all i think that the problem i have is there's no adversarial testing of the government's case in chief which the supreme court in hamdi said was absolutely required by due process for detention if as if you believe that that killing is certainly no less a deprivation of due process than long-term military detention we can fight about the realm yeah, yeah, right yeah. I don't know why it doesn't follow that you also have to have a right even after the fact awkward though that may seem, to meaningful adversarial testing of of the factual basis for the government's you know application of the legal theory. That, that's where I get stuck in allaki.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense.
1: All right, what, wow. how long have we been going?
0: Uh, an hour and 10 minutes. It's
1: our usual. Uh, it's
0: like a law of nature. And so on so, that so, note, well, do you is want, there more?
1: All I want to say is, so so what is, no, the no legal precedent has been set here. There's no binding circuit decision. Oh, yeah, all that no, merit
0: stuff is just uh, expressions of opinion. Internal to the executive branch about
1: right. what the law ought to be. And the controversy, I think, will rage if ever again we see a use of force like this against the U.S. citizen. A seems seems to create at least a factual precedent. For a drone check against a U.S. citizen, but you know, if it's not in a context where the they're they're an operational lead where all those criteria are satisfied, I think there's going to be a lot of well-deserved howling about the need for more review. It's interesting when you put it that way. It makes it sound like the justiciability
0: type rulings that we opened with have a suspension-like function in terms of removing judicial checks, and therefore some might say, "Oh, so all hell's going to break loose." But the truth is, all hell. Hasn't broke loose in respect of the use of force. There are citizen members of Al Qaeda out there. There are others who have been publicly identified as being on the kill list.
1: This just doesn't come up that much. No, but 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 the the fear is that if we ever get to a point where it could come up more, um, we haven't really learned. We've learned a lot. We haven't we haven't. Shaped the law in any meaningful respect yeah. as a result of this whole episode. I think.
0: I think the. I'm looking at the white papers. Yeah. I say this that for Obama, those speeches and the white papers and the internal memos, um, they understood within the executive branch they couldn't make the law to bind their successors. Yep. But in this and in a million other ways, they were trying to make as much practical precedent oh, as they could. I agree.
1: But but I just I just have no but, faith that that's going to bind anybody Well, it's when it not matters. law, as you right. say. Okay.
0: It's, it's just custom and practice. So
1: maybe for our next deep dive, we'll go back to some law. Maybe. I don't know. Or just an, a deep dive into frivolity. Just a pure frivolity episode. No. No. All right. Um, <laughs> so listen, we, uh, we, we may or may not be back next week with another deep dive episode. We haven't figured that out yet. But at the very least, we'll be back the week after Labor Day with the latest developments in national security law. So follow Bobby at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore We are at NSL Podcast. Um, and tell your friends, you know, sometimes we actually teach you things. Sometimes. Stay safe out there. Adios.